Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. My name is Mike, in case y'all have uh, forgotten. Uh, it's, uh, for those, it's always an interesting summertime. I usually uh, I take some time away uh, from this spot. Uh, it's not all vacation, some of it is, but it gives me a chance to uh, kind of get some perspective to work on some things without being uh, stuck in it. And uh, it's always great to hear from other voices uh, who are a part of our church. I'm really, really grateful for James and Jeff Banks, and for Sass, who I assume y'all all appreciate over the last few weeks. Is that right? We can say thank you to them. Um, and uh, I got to come uh, to church uh, and drive with my family in the car and park in the parking lot and sit over here. And then uh, I got to sit with a friend over here. And so it's just a great way to be a, a part uh, of what's happening in, in that way. And I'm super grateful uh, for the opportunity uh, to do that, and also really grateful for the opportunity um, to be back. Uh, people always ask, because uh, people start coming here uh, during the summer, and when I come up here, they're like, hey man, who's the, who are the other people, right? So who are the other people that were uh, speaking, and who are you in relation to all this? So that's always fun uh, as well. One of the things I want to do um, today, over the next couple of weeks, is we're going to be looking at a particular encounter. We, we talk about this a lot uh, at Port City Church. And in fact, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably seen me draw something that looks like this. In some capacity, it, its forms vary depending on what kind of mood I'm in. But we talk about this. Everybody's seen this before? A lot of you've seen this before, right? Uh, this, is, this is how you get to be the way that you are. This is how you are the way that you are. And we're gonna talk about this idea of encounter and, and particularly uh, an encounter that someone has with Jesus that a lot of us, you may have heard about this story and you've heard about it from a particular uh, way of thinking about it. What I'm gonna try to do is to take us on a journey from a very different perspective and see what we might learn about some very familiar language some language that we've probably gotten too comfortable with and language that some ways have been used in really negative ways and other ways I think needs to be redeemed and replaced or, or brought back onto our lives for what Jesus actually intended for it to mean. But that's why we first have to encounter Jesus. We have to first collide with him. The way I think about this, and just again, just as sort of some backstory, I, what, I, what I have to remind myself, especially when I've been out for a while and I try to back up and get a bigger picture, is I always try to think about my frames, the way I see the world. And I have three basic convictions that I operate according to. And again, if you've been here, you've heard this before as well, that, that if God created life, he alone gets to define it. If God said, this is water, then he gets to say, this is water. We don't get to say, no, it's something else, right? If God created life, then he gets to define it. Whoever, gets, whoever creates, originates, gets the, the right to define things. And so this is just my posture of submission. To say, okay, God, if you've established this, how do I come underneath what you have said it and called it and created it to be? So that's sort of thing one. Thing two, 
uh, happened to me when I realized that I am a super passionate person. I want things deeply and often desperately. And I also realized uh, early on in my life that I can want the wrong things. Did you know that? You can actually want things that aren't good for you. You can want things that aren't helpful to you. You can want things that hurt other people. In fact, some of us do this. We want for things to go bad for other people, right? I've learned that, that, that we, 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 can, we want things deeply. And part of what I grew up thinking or hearing was that the way you suppress that is by not wanting things. You just stop wanting. And so you kind of numb yourself and you try to behave and do things correctly. And I realized that's not at all what God has created. He's, he's created life and he's called us to come alive. He's called us to be that. And so that's where I began to explore this, that every longing at its core, everything at the very center of what I want is actually a longing to be alive, a longing for life. So you begin to see this kind of unfold, right? That if God creates life and he alone gets to define it and he wires us as his created ones with a pursuit, an innate pursuit to be alive. And we all know this. We all know this. I'm doing a really interesting exercise. This is, has nothing to do with the message. And this could be a problem for today because I've got way too much. I'll try to be really tight. But um, I'm reading and researching on some really interesting theological topics from a completely evolutionary perspective. Because what you see is that there's so much about human desire and human pursuit and the way they even talk about it from this perspective that is exactly this. It's exactly this. We want to be alive. The question is, how do you define it? How do you define what it means to be alive? Right, we all know this, you know, ball is life. Or surfing is life. Or golf is life. You know, God help you with that. But you've got to consider some things because all of us are pursuing this. Some of you think more money is life or this relationship would be life or getting out of this relationship would be life or if your kids did this, that would be life. We have all these things. We don't have a framing reference that actually helps us to center on what I believe is the most important thing. And so I'm gonna put this out there and this has been my quest for the better part of a decade and will probably be my quest perhaps for the rest of my life is that what if Jesus himself is the life that we are longing for? What if what the gospel says about that, what if what Jesus said about himself is actually true? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And every longing is to find its root, its source, its, its uh, meaning and its purpose within that relationship, that we would be reconciled to the Father and in that be redeemed to the very thing that we were created for. I think you at least got to consider this because you know that golf ain't life, right? You know that more money ain't life. You know that all those things that we tend to stack up there aren't life. So let's look at this. What we need to do is we need a, an encounter with Jesus to, that does something to us. And we had to find this. This is a really simple process by which you become the way that you are. An encounter, I define it like this. Encounter is an unexpected collision, an unexpected experience. Something happens and you encounter something, you see something, you experience something, you're like, whoa, and it, and it does something to you. An encounter is, is with you, you know, uh, well, let me just keep going. Whatever it is that you see, it affects what happens in our hearts. And so I'm gonna 
kind of put this, and I always, always kind of add a heart to this. I should have done it on the back, but that's okay. You get the idea. Formation, then, is essentially the effect that that encounter has on us, right? All of us have had these things. If you were young and you uh, were out on the street and a dog jumped off his leash and bit you, guess what happens to you? The effect of that counter, encounter causes you to be what? Afraid of dogs, right? You're, you're playing along here. So there's an encounter, this unexpected thing that happens. The effect of that encounter shapes who we are. And then ultimately, this becomes the way it comes out of our lives. The, the effect or, or the expression would simply be what comes out of our lives because of this. It would be the resulting behavior or attitudes that reflect the effect of that encounter. That makes sense, right? So imagine if the dog comes at you and he comes off the leash and instead of him biting you, you go, sit. And he's like, whoa, this person's, and he sits down. And you tell him, lay down. And he lays down, roll over and he rolls over. Now what happens to your heart? You get a little bit of confidence that you have control. You have a way to deal with this. You are in charge of this. And those are equally. And then what's that going to do next time the dog comes at you? You're going to do the same thing. And the more it works, guess what happens? The more you do it over and over again. The challenge for a lot of us isn't, and, and it's, it, it's in, it varies, the challenge for a lot of us, a lot of us have encountered things that were terribly harmful to us. It wasn't a dog when you were seven. It was a parent who abandoned you or someone who did something to you. And what happens, the effect of that on your heart is you learn not to trust people or worse, you learn you can only trust yourself. And that creates a life of pressure and control and working to make sure. And then the problem is, depending on how smart, savvy, charming, whatever, you learn that it actually works. And so all the while you learn how to basically get things done on your own accord. And so as I was thinking about this, most of us have had encounters. Some of them were good and some of them were not so good. But the, but the reality is these encounters, the way in which we experience the world shapes us incredibly deeply oftentimes more deeply than we even realize. And this is why I believe this is so important, what we're gonna talk about today and what we address in terms of what Jesus has said to us is so important. Because we all know that the harsh realities we encounter in this world, and they are many, affect us deeply. And therefore, what we need is an encounter with the beauty of the gospel that affects us equally as deeply. And I'm afraid that most of us, many of us, don't have our lives arranged to encounter God, to encounter Jesus deeply enough to affect us at the level that's required to actually experience life in this broken world. So I want for us to pay attention to how you encounter Jesus. A lot of people, not you, other people, people who go to other churches and do other things, right? Not us. But a lot of times what we think is that we now have God under control. We've encountered God. We did this prayer or that thing and God did exactly what we wanted. And we sort of tamed him. 
And now we know how to pull things off, how to get our way, how to get God's blessing in our lives. If you sing this song just right, if you raise your hands, if you read your Bible, if you give your money, if you do this, then God will come through for you. And that's exactly how religions get started. This is the thing that Jesus came to undo. He can't undo. People ask me, say, Mike, you know what? They make me know I'm a pastor, which is usually one of the last things I tell them. They say, I'm not religious. I'm like, oh, me neither. And that always leads to an interesting conversation. So today we're going to look at Nicodemus, or the next few weeks we're going to look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a part of the prominent ruling class of first century Jerusalem that was underneath Roman rule. This is really important because this was a man who could get things done. He was a man who had his world set up such that things worked for him. He had money, probably. He had influence. He had prominence. His life worked well. So here he is, and he's probably, if we're really honest, he's like a lot of us. We are in charge of our own destinies. We are in charge of the decisions that we make. And that was sort of his thing. What we find here is this scenario starting in John 3 and ending in John 19. We find Nicodemus mentioned three times in the Gospels. This is the third. I want to read this so you can see this. After these things, this is after Jesus was crucified on the cross and everybody saw it. After these things, verse 38 of John chapter 19, Joseph of Arimathea, who was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate if he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So here's what you need to understand. Pilate was the man who had Jesus crucified. He was the Roman sort of... uh, uh, ambassador for that region. So for Joseph of Arimathea to have access to Pilate and say, hey, can I get the body? That's a significant thing. That means he's got access to power. So there he is up there. And so he gives him permission or whatever. And so here's what happens. We keep reading. So he came and he took the body away. Nicodemus also, and here's where we're introduced to Nicodemus at the end, who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75 pounds of weight. And then they took the body and they buried Jesus. So Nicodemus and Joseph were involved in burying Jesus, both of whom had had encounters with Jesus. And in fact, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus. We think that Nicodemus probably was also. So these are people who were high up in power and knew that Jesus was a threat to their systems and sort of respected him or admired him or followed him or believed him or trusted in him. And what I imagine is how did this happen? Well, they knew Jesus was crucified. They knew Rome did it and that they were complicit in it. What did they think? What were their conversations like? I try to imagine this. Perhaps burying him and giving him a a burial was was a a way to respect him at the end of his life. They They could finally do something publicly for someone they had secretly respected. Or maybe there was a tinge of hope. Maybe they had heard him talk about, surely actually they had heard him talk about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. They'd heard these crazy statements that Jesus made. They'd heard him probably talk about coming back from the dead. And so maybe there was a tinge of hope. Maybe they wanted to do this as some way to express, but they had spent most of their lives in an environment hostile to this, and they had to keep their cards about Jesus close to their chest. And this is why Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. So we're going to pick this back up in John chapter 3. I want to read this. I want you to, I want you to visualize what this is like because a lot of us have heard that Nicodemus sort of goes to Jesus and he's curious about him. 
He's like a seeker. Like, I got some questions about Jesus since I'm really curious about him. And so he goes to Jesus at night. I don't think that's the way we ought to read this story. Nicodemus had a lot of power. Nicodemus had a lot of you know, prominence. He had a lot to lose with this radical prophet named Jesus disrupting everything that they knew to be normal. This is like, we've got to get in this mindset to read the Bible or else it just becomes tame. The Bible is not tame. The stories of Jesus are not tame. They're radical. What Jesus did was upsetting a lot of things. In fact, what happens in John chapter two, before this happens, Jesus goes into the temple and he sees them selling uh, sacrifices and basically exploiting people. Basically, if you want to get in good with God, you got to buy these animals, you got to buy them from us. And Jesus goes in, he turns the tables over, pulls out a whip and drives the animals out of the, uh, the temple. And he, everybody knew this, it's recorded for us. This was a significant deal. Jesus is, is creating havoc in these places. So it says, Nicodemus comes to him at night. Let's read this in John chapter three. Now there was a man uh, of the Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with them. Now, most of us have this picture that Nicodemus is coming like really curious about all the things that Jesus is doing. Think about this. If you were in charge and someone is disrupting the thing that you're in charge of, are you going to like compliment them? Are you going to tell them, hey, man, I'm really curious about, you know, so I can be on your team? No. He's trying to figure out what in the heck is his agenda and what in the heck is my agenda and can our agendas overlap? I think Nicodemus is going there going, hey, look, we're in charge, but you obviously have a lot of following. Is there any way we could kind of work together? These are political people. Right? Politicians aren't looking for principles to pull. They're looking for people to work with to stay in power, typically, right? No, you don't think that's true? <laughs> so Nicodemus isn't going there trying to change, probably. He's going there to see if he can strike a win-win with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, look, I know you got some power. Obviously, it's from God. You're doing some cool things. We could perhaps work together. I could get you a crowd like you can't even begin to imagine. I can get you power like you can't begin to imagine. I think that's Nicodemus. That's how he lived his whole life. This is his first encounter with Jesus that we see. And this is what Jesus says to him. And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Y'all heard that phrase before? Born again? Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, how do you think Nicodemus would have taken that? Okay, wait a minute. Do you, do you not understand, like, I work in the kingdom of God? I, like, run the kingdom of God, the temple. I'm in charge of all this stuff. You're telling me unless I'm born again? Like, what are you even talking about? In fact, that's what he says. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Is he supposed to, like, crawl back? It's kind of, he's supposed to crawl back into his mother's womb? Like, this is, this is not an encounter that's like, oh, let's have a civil conversation. This is like sarcasm. This is, I don't think you know who you're messing with. We, we read this encounter, we even hear a phrase like born again. 
And what we realize is that we have, a lot of us, we have, this is kind of my assumption for this, we all have religious baggage. I assume you have some religious baggage that you carry from whatever it is. Maybe it's because you grew up in a church that did things that you just couldn't believe that people who love Jesus would do. All right, maybe it's history that you've read. Maybe it's you grew up and you weren't in the church and you just didn't like what other people did. Or maybe you were, there's a whole bunch of reasons. We all have it. I have it. The phrase born again is probably not a phrase that you would hear at Port City Church very often, right? You've been here a long time. I don't use that phrase a lot. There are reasons why. Do you know why? Because I have some spiritual baggage. When I was growing up, youth group, I was in youth group, and they used to always talk about being born again. That's what it was talked about. You know what being born again was always about? Being born again was about how sure you are about where you're going. That's what it was always about. Do you know what I'm talking about? They would say, the, the evangelist or the speaker would say things like this. You need to be born again. Raise your hand, make a decision, and be born again. If you want to be born again. Then they would say something like this. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? Y'all heard this before? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? In other words, do you, do you, are you in a place where you do not have a shred of doubt about where you're going when you die? And they would add this to it. You remember when you're, you remember your birthday, don't you? I'm like in ninth grade, I'm like, yeah, October 14th, 1970. And you're born, yeah. Then you should remember the day you were born again. And if you can't remember that date, then perhaps you don't know that you know that you know that you know that you know. And you know what? I was like seven and I didn't remember. And it was terrible. Because I'm in ninth grade and I'm wondering, I don't know that I know that I know because I can't remember the date that I was born again. And so I stopped using that. The term has also become to mean other things. In the late 80s, early 90s, born again was sort of the modern label for evangelicals. A born again Christian meant someone who was very religious, someone who was morally straight, often had strong political opinions. You know what I'm talking about? Do y'all know anybody like that? And so born again, you kind of resisted that term. But here's what's interesting. What is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is as religious as you get. So when Jesus says you need to be born again, he can't be saying you need to get more religious. He can't be saying you need to get more moral. He can't, he can't be saying any of those things. But that's how most of us have grown up believing it. And that's the second assumption is that our baggage often frames our perspective. So what does it mean to be born again? And what in the world is Jesus talking about? The kingdom of God, and this, this is what Jesus talked about. Jesus did not talk about what happens to you when you die. Is that an important question? Yes, it's important. Does the kingdom of God have implications on it? Yes, it has implications on it. But the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, he said, it is now, it is here, it is present, it is available. It is not only a place that you go when you die, it is a way in which we live here and now. We, as those who follow Jesus, have to get this into our DNA. We have to encounter this and see this so it shapes us because otherwise it just becomes a ticket 
If you think the kingdom of God or the gospel is only about getting to heaven when you die, it becomes a ticket. And being born again is the way you get that ticket. And when you get to heaven, Peter is like the ticket agent and you get to hand it to him and you get to get in. And that's how most of us think the gospel is. That is such a shallow, and if I'm really honest, not compelling at all version of the gospel. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is about life and freedom and hope and an unshakable faith that not only survives, but that brings life to this world around us that so desperately needs it. That's what you need to encounter. That's what Jesus came to bring. When Jesus says you must be born again, he wasn't talking about only there so that you think the gospel is a ticket when you die and you think about the invitation to be born again is about getting a ticket. But if you think of the gospel as only here, then you end up thinking that it's sort of a way to deal with our social ills. It's the solution to our political problems. Then to be born again is to essentially line up with the right beliefs on the right issues. And this happens on both the right-hand side of politics. And my prediction is, I like to predict the future, but let me tell you what's gonna happen. The more progressive left wing of the church is going to do the same thing the right did 20 years ago. It's going to happen. And this is the problem. I've been saying this for five or six years. Both the left and the right are two sides of the same coin in the wrong system. Do we have to pay attention to them? Of course we do. But to be born again is to move out of one place and into another. That's what Jesus is getting at. We're gonna see that again. If the kingdom of God is both there and here, and Jesus calls us to seek first his kingdom, to encounter it first, and his invitation to be born again must be something different than we think, and it must be something more. Interestingly enough, the word born again, born again, the word again is the Greek word anathen. So when I'm off for a while, I get to read and study Greek. That's what makes this fun. Then you think I know more than I really do. I just look this up. <clears throat> and in fact, if you have your Bibles, it's probably mentioned in a little footnote down there. You can see this in your Bible. It has like a little E or an F, and you just click it. If you're on your phone, it'll show you, pop this up. It says this word means two things. One, it certainly means again. It also means from above. The same word is used a few verses down when Jesus says, I have come from above, from Anathan. I've come from Anathan. I've come from above. And now I'm here. That's in John 3.31, just a few verses later. And the reason this is important because what Jesus is saying, what we're going to look at is he's saying a couple of things. He was using sort of a play on words. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a smart guy. He knew language. Nicodemus was a smart guy. He knew language. He knew Jewish history. So we're having this exchange. Jesus says, unless you're born again. And Nicodemus says, oh yeah, I'm supposed to go back in my mother's womb. And Jesus is saying something to him. And then he explains this a little further in John 3, verse 5 through 8. Let's keep reading. Jesus answered, and here's his answer. Do I need to go back up my mother's womb? What are you saying? Jesus says, okay, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I just cleared it right up, didn't it? Oh yeah, I got it now, I understand. Done my quiet time, underlining that verse. God, thanks for speaking to me today. We have no idea what he's talking about. So you know what you do when you do that? You go, what is he talking about? 
And you start to dig and you start to mine. You say, God, help me to see something. Verse six, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit, spirit is complicated stuff, right? It makes perfect sense. Flesh gives birth to, you can say it out loud, flesh. And spirit gives birth to, right? Apple seeds grow up to apple trees that produce Orange trees grow up to produce orange trees that produce, right, oranges. This, this, is, this is basic. We all get this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The spirit or the wind, which is the same word, the pneumos, the breath of God, that's how we would understand this, blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He goes on down. He says a lot more things. And then he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life and should not perish. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. For everyone who comes into the light, right? He goes through this whole thing with Nicodemus. This is an incredibly compelling encounter that Nicodemus has. I don't have time to do all that today. So let me see if I can wrap this up. Jesus is, Nicodemus is like, what are you saying to me? And Jesus looks back and says, you, unless you are born of water and of spirit, he's introducing, I believe, the new covenant that he's about to inaugurate. The new way in which we're going to live and exist underneath God's rule and reign in the rule of his love in the kingdom of God. And he says there are two things of water and of spirit. And I think he's using this very, very pointedly. There is a nourishing. See, most of us think that baptism or these things are fundamentally about washing and cleansing. And that's true. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but Nicodemus would have known this. He knew Jewish teaching. He knew that when he said of water and of spirit, there was a connection throughout the prophets. We see this in Isaiah 44. For this, is a, this is the prophet Isaiah writing a poem, essentially, about the things of God and the way this new covenant is gonna unfold, this new thing that God is gonna do. For I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit. He's equating these two things. Pouring of water and the pouring of spirit, are, are, they're, they're similar. They have, there's a metaphor that he's using. I'll pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. And if I may stop here, here's one of the things you need to mark down where our church is going in the next 10 years. And this is where I think that our culture and I think the church has completely dropped the ball. This is a total aside. The gospel is a generational promise that requires generational attention and we have failed to do that. A culture that allows children to have to make the kind of decisions that they are making and to see the things that they have to deal with sexually and otherwise is irresponsible for an adult population to do to their children. And it is because we have fundamentally forgotten that the promise we've been given is generational. It is for our children's children. And so that's what he's saying. That's, this is all throughout what we are, are given in the scriptures, which is why we are so dead serious about fuse and about tsunami and about ripple effect and about treasure, about all of our children's ministry. We are dead serious because we take very seriously 
our generational promise. Told y'all I've been off way too long, and that's a whole other aside. (sighs) We got to get this. Y'all, we have to get this. There is a nourishing that the Spirit does. To live and to walk with the Holy Spirit fuels and nourishes like water to a parched land. Don't you need that? There's also a cleansing. Nicodemus would have known this imagery. You must be born again of water and of spirit. You need to be nourished. You also need to be cleansed. Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. It's all talking about this new covenant, this new promise that is coming, that Jesus came to bring. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you from these things and I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you, a new source of life. And I will remove from you your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, this soft heart. I'll replace the one that is hardened and unresponsive, the one who always has to be in charge, the one who is terrified of ever being out of control, the one who demands the future be certain. I will replace that heart with one that is responsive. So when the wind blows, when the spirit moves, you can be responsive to him. Look at what he says, verse 27. Look at this. And I will put my spirit in you and move you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my commands. Who does the work? The spirit promises to move you, to move me. What we need is to be pliable. We need to be moldable. We, most of us come to God and what we are often looking for is what we already think we know about him. That's what Nicodemus was doing. That's what I did most of my life. Hey God, I'm a good moral guy. I wanna be rich. How about this? Make me rich, I'll give you glory and my wealth. That is a win-win. Why would he not do that? Like for the life of me, I can't figure out why God would not do that. Don't you feel like that? God, make my, I mean, we all have these prayers that God, if you'll just make this work out or that work out, I'll be sure to give you glory, right? We score a touchdown in the NFL. We're like, praise God. Everybody praises God when things are going perfect. That is easy. God is not interested. That's not what he's talking about. He said, you have to be born again because everything, Nicodemus, that you have done or thought needs to be reset and restarted because the life that you think you have is no life at all. That is a hard thing to swallow. He says you need a new start and you need a new source. That which is born of flesh is flesh. A lot of us, this was my pursuit for a long time. God, I'll try harder. God, I promise I won't do that again. God, please don't make this go bad for me since I did that. You ever prayed prayers like that? 
Those are all ways for us to get God's kingdom on our terms. It is trying to find a new life in the old way. And you know what he says to that? You got to be born again. You've got to be reborn because flesh always gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. This has everything to do with what you encounter. The spirit is like the wind. He goes where he wishes. Our job isn't to figure out where he's going, but rather to remain responsive and to follow, to sense and to hear and to respond to what it is that we see and sense. And we need one another. We need the scriptures and we need God's spirit desperately. As much as I want to know the future, and we've been working on this for about the last five or six years, you know, Mike, where, where's the future? we like, I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to be doing as a church? I'm not really sure. But I can tell you what I do know is that God is leading us and we are committed to following him. I'm committed to following him. I'm committed to try to discern and to sense. I'm, trying to, I'm committed to trying to say, God, keep my heart as pliable and as soft and do whatever you need to do to keep it from being hardened and to keep me from using my experience and my wisdom and what I already know to overlay that on you, which we all do. I could be alone, but I doubt it. It's a new birth. You need to be nourished and you need to be cleansed. This isn't like letting you off the hook. We gotta be cleansed. We gotta be different. That's what God's doing. He's calling us. You want your heart pliable, not trying to obey what he said, but trying to become what he's actually created you to become. A new heart, a responsiveness to him. Every time, I'm 50 years old. I've told you all this before. I thought but I should have all my theology worked out and I'd spend the last 10 or 15 years just executing what I knew about God. And instead, he keeps revealing more and more and more of himself and newer and newer and newer things. And I'll be honest, it drives me crazy sometimes. But if you think you've got him figured out and you're coming to him to get him to confirm what you already believe so you can get on with your life and get his blessings on it, you will miss the point every single time. And most of us, that's how we encounter him. Behold, I do a new thing, the prophet says. A new thing. Jesus hasn't invited you to be born again so you'll be more moral and religious than the other side or anybody else. He's called you to live in his love as an expression of his love. And the only possible way that can happen isn't by trying harder. It's by encountering his love. You must be born again. You need a new start. Some of you, you really need that. And you've been trying so hard for so long. You need a new start today. This ain't a decision, it's a miracle, okay? It's a miracle. And when it happens today, tomorrow's gonna be hard and this isn't like, I mean, think about this. What does it mean to be born again? Right, to be born 
is the beginning point of your life, right? That's what it is. October 14, 1907 was the beginning point of all that would happen and unfold over the next, to this point, 50-ish years. So why do we think being born again is like a ticket? You know what being born again is? It's the beginning point. It's the beginning point by which or from which you become who you have been created to be. Right? You need a new start. I need a new start. And we need a new source. A new source. That's what the gospel does. I've got to admit, I often thought Jesus would be come to him and pray and he would make my life go better. Right? You ever thought that? If I go to church more, my life will go better, my bills will get paid, my girlfriend will stop being this way, or my husband or my wife or whatever your thing is. Instead, what Jesus says, oh, if you want to follow me, you got to come and die because you need to be born again. And the life that I want is on the other side of that death. And for that to occur, I need to be born again. So what I want to do as we close, I want you to just consider where you are. What I don't want you to do is to go, do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? I, I don't want you to do that. God is better than that. He's not testing your memory. What I want you to do is to consider your response to him. For some of you to be baptized, to be born again means to be nourished. You are dry, you are parched, you are empty, you are dead and you need for life to come there. And he says, I will give you a new heart. We just receive, we just trust, we just respond to him. And he gives us a new heart to be pliable in that way. So I'm gonna pray for us. If you're here and you're not sure what to do, what I would encourage you to do, I'm not gonna put any pressure, we would never do that. But our posture is to help. And if you have questions or you're not sure or you need to know what to do next, we are open-handed, extended to you. It'd be an honor to help you take whatever steps you need to take. Maybe to confirm some things, maybe to start some things. It would be an honor for us to do that. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna declare, uh, I think it's just a beautiful picture of the gospel um, as we, we close. And I pray that you will have an encounter with Jesus. And in that, you'll get more than what you bargained for. Father, thank you that you have called us to be born again. For some of us, a new start is exactly what we need. Our old is so damaged and messed up and hardened but the promise of a new start feels like water to a thirsty land. Thank you for your spirit in doing that. God, for others, we need a new source. We have depended on ourselves and we vacillate back and forth. I ask that you would just remind us, renew us, 
We have your life. You, in fact, are our life. So, Father, let us just consider what you're calling in us, each of us. I trust you to speak in the way that you want. And so I just ask you to use these next few minutes uh, to that end. And I lift the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king.